airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Party to hop off for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with you, Macray in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today, and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment, 17 degrees. Honey, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest is from an era that was all about the hits that happen, the platter that matter, all spun on that fantastic black plastic. Jim Slade wasn't just another jock on the radio, he was the biggest name on the Adelaide Airwaves in the 60s. And away we go. Jim Slade, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure. It's lovely being here, Paul. Now, Jim, Adelaide born and bred, in an era where the wireless was the centrepiece of family entertainment, what's your earliest memories of listening to the radio at home? Actually, I've got some very good memories. I, from about the age of four or five, I used to listen to the, the radio constantly. I just loved it. Um, Bob Fricker, um, who is no longer with him, naturally, but he, he was one person I first started listening to when I got probably to about the age of six or seven. And uh, his son actually came to one of my shows. When, 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 you, when you're talking about radio, it's the most wonderful thing that, uh, that I feel. Television is fine. I've done a, some tele- television work. But radio has got something about it, and uh, it's um, just as a, something I, I really enjoy. Now, Jim, back in the day, live studio audiences were very much part of radio. Did you ever attend any of those productions as a youngster? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can, as soon as you mentioned that, 5K and Franklin Street used to have Jimmy Tonkin, and uh, he was a bloke then in his 70s or 80s. Um, but uh, Jimmy Tonkin was... Uh, they, they put on good, happy shows for kids as well as for bigger kids like me. And it was just a, 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 an atmosphere of, of, of happiness. And it was usually on a Saturday morning. Uh, I think from memory, it started at about six, uh, 10.30 and went through to about 11.30 or 12 o'clock. But, yeah, it's very much live audience but where you can really enjoy yourself. I just kept on listening to radio after that, and uh, I was hooked. Now, school-wise, Jim, how'd you go? I did well. Uh, I was in the top eight, top seven, um, grade seven. Uh, I went through to grade seven. Uh, I had to leave school just after that because I, I've never had a father and uh, my mother had to go out to work. 
and uh, I, I missed out on leaving English, but uh, about three or four years after that, I went and took leaving English and passed. I just wanted to get some credentials. Your pathway into radio was one of the least conventional I've ever heard of, in that it all started in the police force. Well, it started in the post office, actually. And uh, when I was in the post office, going into uh, riding the bike around, there was nothing nothing like riding a bike, a push bike around at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, there's nothing happening, it's, well, particularly Adelaide, there's nothing happening. And I had a, a stepfather who I would say probably one of the worst things my mother, my mother ever did, and it wasn't her fault. I, I, he, he tried to beat me up a couple of times, and uh, I thought, I'll fix you. And I, I happened to go to the um, CSA police force. Um, they had a, a couple of meetings there, and I thought, I'll join the police force. Then he won't do a thing. And sure, enough, silly, silly thing, but it, it actually worked. And then when I was in the police force, I then decided, I was then wanting to get into radio, not knowing how to get into radio, but to do it, um, I knew that I had to improve my speech. So there was a gentleman here called John Edmund, and I went to his uh, speech academy, and uh, he put me through about, I think, six weeks of, of tra training with my voice. Uh, and I remember John saying then, he said, Jim, I've done everything I can. The rest is up to you. So I, I decided I'd, I'd go into the police force. I went into the radio room to begin with, um, Brigitte McKenna heard me one morning on, on the radio reading the police news. And he said to one of the girls, they congratulate that young man, he's, he's good. They said, I'm sorry, sir, he goes to 5DL on Monday. And uh, just one of those things that happened. But it, it was an interesting part of, part of my life. 1962, the first radio gig at a capital city station in 5DN in your hometown, almost a dream start to the career. What did they have you doing first up when you arrived? Graham Cornish was the uh, the disc jockey at the time, and uh, I was playing records, which is what you had to do, uh, timing records up to the chimes and things like that. As luck would happen, uh, and I used to do, I think Saturday night ring and request. We used to, we got up to a thousand calls a night. Uh, that was on Saturday night, though. And uh, one day Graham said to me, uh, "Look," he said, oh, "I've got to go home. I'll be staying there. Um, my dad's not well." And then he looked at me and he just put it down to the chair that he was sitting on. He said, that is going to be yours. And uh, that was my um, induction, introduction into, into uh, radio on air. And when I went on, on air, the one thing I made sure was that I played the record. I did everything. I didn't want any, I didn't want a presentation of playing records for me. I wanted to do everything myself. And uh, that's what, that's what I did. And uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, to top the ratings most of the time. Um, I love the work. Thank you very much, everybody. Hello, how are you? Hello. Well, first of all, we'd like to say that we'd like to thank everybody for the marvellous welcome we've had to Adelaide. Thank you. Marvellous. 12th of June, 1964, an important day in the history of Adelaide. It was the day that the Beatles hit town, an occasion that may not have happened, but for the persistence of Jim Slade, Bob Francis, and the John Martin department store. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time? Bob Francis, who spearheaded the thing, we backed him up. And uh, we, we just hammered them, uh, particularly England, to get the Beatles to, to come to Adelaide. When the Beatles arrived, 
it was just the most amazing situation. There were 300,000 people lining the streets. It's something I've never been seen before. I don't see it being seen before, and I don't think it'll be seen again. Just looking over these hundreds of thousands of people, uh, it was exciting. Um, and it, a lot of people didn't go to work the next, next day or the day after that. Uh, but it was just a, a, a tremendous time. Now, Jim, history would recall that the original Beatles schedule didn't include Adelaide, but you guys put a fair bit of pressure on the Australian promoter Ken Brosiak to make sure that the group came across. Put a lot of pressure on him. We had uh, the, there were people uh, writing to him, ringing. It tended ended up being three hundred thousand people, and uh, it was just a, an incredible time. Absolutely incredible, especially when you consider that Adelaide at the time, the population was around about 650,000 people and 300,000 came out to see the Beatles. Now, Jim, what sort of rivalry was there between the radio stations to provide the best coverage of that Beatles visit? You know, I can't tell you the answer to that because we all, I think we must have all worked together somehow. There was no, um, who's going to be first in, there was none of that, Bob Bob Francis may have uh, I know he, he um, looked down on, on the, the crown net, and as we all did. But there was there was no real rivalry to get the, the Beatles there, there and they, they opened their doors and we were able to talk to them any time. They, they were fantastic. And uh, they'd never seen, seen anything like this either. So JSDJ on DN lasted five years before it was time to move on. So what triggered that shift across town to 5KA? 5DN was changing their, their, their musical policy and they were going to go middle of the road. And uh, actually, I remember Merv Thomas, who was our program director at the time, when I was talking to him one day in the studio, the decision had been made that uh, the, the station is going to go straight middle of the road music. And uh, Merv Thomas turned around to me and said, Jim, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to read news. He said, you can't read news. You're a bloody disc jockey. And within six months, I was on air reading news. So I, I went to, to 5K. Um, no no animosity because 5DN just wanted... That was the time when they wanted the best for you and 5DN wanted the best for me. And they thought that they, behind doors, said, yeah, it would be better if Jim went across to, to 5K. It's just a, a wonderful, as I say, it won't happen now, or would not happen now, but then it did, and uh, it was wonderful. So can you recall some of the other jocks who were on the roster at 5KA at the time? Ian Sells, they used to call him. Uh, Ian, Ian was, um, he used to wear a wig. <laughs> oh, boy, he's a lovely, lovely bloke. But, um, and he used to have his girlfriend in the studio after after hours. Not for, just, not for any other, other reason, but... She was allowed to come in. Roger Dowsett was there. Um, oh, Chaz Lumsden came along, and uh, he used to listen to uh, what happened. He got a job on 5KA, and he used to listen to Melbourne Radio, and he'd write down any gimmicks they used, and, that, and then he'd come on to 5KA that night, and he'd use them as if they were his own, which is a bit cheeky, but uh, he used to in- introduce himself like Big C, Little H-A-S, other people use other terms, but that was that was Chaz. He, he wasn't the best broadcaster, but he, he, and, and his gimmicks wore out after a while. But um, overall, 
um, I, I don't even know, know what happened to Chaz now, but he, he made an impact in the first couple of weeks, three months, and then after that, just sort of doing, doing the surveys didn't, didn't treat him favorably after that. So, Jim, we're talking that 66 to 69 era when it was Rogers in Sydney, Rofe in Melbourne, and Slade in Adelaide. Now, we know that Chaz was eavesdropping across the border, but how conscious were you of what was happening in the other capital cities? Not really. Um, I used to run my own race. Uh, I did what I wanted to do. I made a, a promise to myself that I would never copy anyone. Uh, everything I did was mine, and I developed it myself. Um, that includes the, the way I, uh, I, I called the, my listeners out there pussycats. But just a silly little thing, but it went, it went over well. People liked that sort of thing. I just loved the, uh, the, the atmosphere of, um, of being in radio, and, and I used to host many, many shows. I'm, I'm, I host probably five shows a week. Um, that's a live, live host, and uh, I just loved that. I, and you got to know the people better. People got to know you better, which is even better. And uh, we, we had a, a, a fabulous time. There was a little bit of animosity, but nothing of it. Ch- Chaz was probably the one that stirred up more emotion than, uh, than anything else. Hi, this is Jim Slade, and I'm with you every afternoon from 4 o'clock. Get with the jet-powered sounds. And let's have your views on records in discussion. We take off every afternoon, Monday through Friday, at 4 o'clock on 5KA. Now, the advent of the transistor radio meant that the teenagers had independence in their listening habits right away from their parents, with the jocks at the time almost the biggest influences in their lives. So how conscious were you of the influence that you had at the time? I was aware of it, but I didn't make any use of it. You did, of course, get out and make a habit of meeting the people. Tell us a little bit about the dance hall days in Adelaide. Something to keep in mind is that the dances we had at the time, and there were a lot of people that went to them, um, three, four, five, six, seven hundred, but there was no alcohol involved. It was uh, it was all soft drink, and uh, that that was it. And and we 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 some nights I, I would be at Brighton one day, um, Seacliff another day, comparing dances. It was and you got paid for it. There was a, a reasonable sort of money earner there, but it was all all fun. And, uh, and you, you just got to know people so well, and they got to know you. And it was a fabulous atmosphere. Now, we're all aware that the big music acts around at the time had their fan clubs, but there was also a very active Jim Slade fan club. How did that help your popularity, Jim? In 1965 and 67, I was voted top disc jockey in both those years. I, I've got a badge, or not a badge, it's on my, my phone, uh, a photograph of me. And uh, I was so proud of that, that um, it was something that, that, that I wore with, with pride. And a person who was instrumental in getting people to, aware of the fact that I, I needed to be put up there was um, Lynn Hook. Lynn ran the Elvis Presley fan club. And Lynn had the largest Elvis fan club in Australia and probably one of the largest in the world. Speaking of Elvis, how close were you to actually interviewing the King? Around the mid-60s, I think. I wanted to go to America to, uh, to see Elvis Presley. I wanted to meet him. And uh, as it turned out, we were driving along Antioch Highway. When, I was, when we were driving along there, someone pulled us over. We just received a telegram 
Colonel Tom has knocked back Jim's interview with Elvis Presley. And uh, that sort of put a, 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 a bit of an upset on the whole thing. But um, the old Colonel was saying, uh, um, that's right, it was two days out uh, from the from me leaving to go to America because everything had been booked. And uh, two days out, Colonel said, no, off, no way. Now, for a relatively small city, the big names certainly came through and you were able to catch up with most of them, including the late, great Roy Orbison. Roy would have been, unfortunately for him, well, unfortunately for me, the worst interview I've ever done because he answered every question as a monosyllable. And I can't even say that properly. Um, one word answered is what uh, Roy gave me. And uh, that, that was all. He, he just couldn't extend himself. He wasn't a talker. And uh, so sadly, that, that wasn't an interview that, that, uh, that I enjoyed. Well, what about the local artists like Sharik and Farnham, for example? They, actually, Glenn is one of the nicest, nicest guys around. And John Farnham, there's a story about John. that I, One day, a woman came to the door of the radio station and uh, said that his, her little boy wants to meet John. John Farnham. So I, I tried to find out where, where he was. He was at the north of Queensland. Um, we spoke to his doctor, and he said there's no chance that he's going to come down uh, in that short time to to see. Not that he didn't want to see him. He wanted to see the little boy, but the, the stretch was too big, the top end of, New, of Queensland uh, down there. And uh, as as uh, luck would have it, the little boy hung on, and he, he met John. Hey, nice story. And your history with John goes back a, a fair way, doesn't it, Jim? I've known John since he was about 22 or 20, and uh, I haven't seen him for quite, quite a while, but I, I went on a two-week cruise one day, and uh, his manager then was, um, he had to go away for a couple of weeks, and he said to me, would you look up John, we'll t- take a, a riverboat or whatever, and uh, uh, and if you can just make sure he doesn't get into trouble, or anyone gets into trouble with him, and uh I got to know John pretty well, and, and, and John is what you see is what you get. He's just a, a lovely, lovely bloke, and uh, that, that I'll, I'll never forget that little boy. Melbourne has the cup and the football. Melbourne has the MCG. Melbourne has the all, but that's not all. Melbourne has Radio 3DB. So in 1970, the king of Adelaide Radio packs up the headset and moves to Melbourne to 3DB. Why the change to a marketplace where you were virtually unknown? Mainly because there was no other room in Adelaide. There was no vacancies at all. I remember that distinctly. And uh, somebody said to me, why don't you try Melbourne? And I thought, hmm, well, maybe. Anyway, um, in Melbourne, 3DB were having, I don't know, no, they weren't looking around for someone at the time. They they were just, we were just, I was just chatting with them. And uh, I did a few shows with them, comparing, and there's still nothing available. And then one day somebody said, oh, they want to see you, Jim. I think you, you, they might want to talk to you about, it, about some work here. And that was the beginning of it. But I spoke to the right people there. And that, that's why I went to, to 3DB. I loved it because it's it, a vibrant place. And uh, things were happening all the time, and I just loved it. 
The lineup at DB at the time saw the Silver Fox John Eden in breakfast, talk back with Gerald Lyons, Dennis Scanlon and Paddy O'Donnell during the day, interrupted of course by the races, and you initially 10 till 1am. So how were you accepted by the new Melbourne audience? You know, I never thought about it. Um, I just thought, well, the job's there, and I took it. Um, I honestly didn't think, I, I, I again, I, I compared, well, yeah, I, I compared a lot of shows, and I, I made myself busy with, with acting. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't um, big time, but uh, you might do a 30-second spot here, another spot there. It was constant work if you wanted it, and you could chase it. And it just, just additional income and, and additional exposure. 3DB and 3LK, key stations in Victoria of the major broadcasting network, a quarter to eight. Even for a big city radio station, was there still plenty of camaraderie between the on-air guys? There was, and uh, John Eden, uh, the Silver Fox, what a, what, a, what a great performer. You didn't have to fit in with the station. The people that you, you met there, the guys on air, there was no animosity. It was, yeah, they'll help you. And they did. And uh, they did in such a way that, until you mentioned it then, I hadn't thought about it. Um, that's the way that they, they did things. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They just, you're here, you're part of it, you're one of us. And it was great. Absolutely great. One of those welcoming people, no doubt, would have been the late Paddy O'Donnell. Yeah, Paddy. Again, just a, a great performer. He, he gave everyone a name. My name was Sludge. S-L-U-D-G-E. <laughs> you say, g'day, Sludge. But, uh, and he was a hard-living bloke, but he would give you anything. He was just, uh, and, and just a, a fabulous person to work with and to be with. Now, Jim, towards the end of your time at DV, you had the lunchtime shift up against the likes of the great John Vertigan at 3UZ, Peter Van at 3KZ, and John O'Donnell at 3XY. Now, was playing music and crossing to the fifth at Werribee really the Jim Slade style of broadcasting? No, but it was work. And I've always taken the attitude that make the most of what you're doing. And uh, it, it, it's not, not difficult. Just tune in. Just tune in, that's all. So being an Adelaide boy at heart, how did you find your time at 3DB and in Melbourne? Oh, I love Melbourne. Absolutely love it. Like if Joy hadn't passed away, uh, I, I think I'd, I'd still be there now. It was, uh, it was just a, a and, and it, again, I guess you'd put it down to the big city. People are, are very welcoming. And uh, as long as you're not trying to rip them off, yeah, they'll keep an eye out for that too. But uh, no, just, just a great city. Okay, a couple of questions just to finish off this section. Jim Slade the Jock was also an entree chef at one of Melbourne's exclusive restaurants. True or false? True. Yeah, that was for a few months. Chick Hansen, who I don't know whether Chick is still around. Uh, he was ran a chicken shop, and uh, he had. He, I think he ended up with about four or five of them. And uh, he, I started to work with Chick, and. Uh, then he decided to open a restaurant. He said, to have it come in with me. So I went in with Chick. And uh, we ran that for about probably a year, two years maybe. And uh, it, was a, it was a great exercise. And I learned a lot. I also taught a lot, but I, I learned a heck of a lot just being on the ground floor. Jim, we spoke about your fan club earlier on. Now, of course, uh, Bernadette Duggan presented you with a book 
about 80 pages in total, just totally covering the whole of your career. How special is that? <laughs> I forgot. And in traveling around, as I have done, I've lost a lot of those, but I've still got the book. The book is still here, just at the back of me now. <laughs> and, oh dear, I only saw it for the first time in ages, uh, a day or two ago. And uh, no, no, there means some wonderful people around. Bernie is, is certainly one of them. Jim, you've met and interviewed a lot of people over the years, but you must have uh, made some sort of an impression on Gene Pitney. I met Gene in 1966 and 68, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty hazy on those figures. And uh, I saw him for the first time. Yeah, it was the first time I saw him was in Adelaide. Then I saw him again. I interviewed him the second time in uh, Sydney, I think. Anyway, um, what happened there was that uh, I, I just, no, that's right, it was back in Adelaide. And uh, I stopped him and I said, Gene, can I have, can I have a word with you? Yeah. And uh, I said, you won't remember this, but uh, I interviewed you in Adelaide. He said, yeah, man, he's in that little room at the airport. And this is, you know, six years later. And that was just amazing. Uh, and what a what a performer. I, I, I was a fan of Gene Pitney from the time I first heard I want to love, you, I want to love my life away. And finally, Jim, if you could sit down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with any one of the four Beatles now, who would it be and why? Paul McCartney, because Paul said, if there'd been no Carl Perkins, there would have been no Beatles. That's a big statement to make. And uh, I would love to have sat down and, and talked to him. I, I didn't have the chance. I, uh, we, we just grabbed opportunities when we could when they were here. But uh, no, I've never, never forgotten that quote. And the same as Mick Jagger. Uh, I had a great interview with Mick. I caught him at the airport. And uh, I just, as he was walking by, I said, oh, Jim said from uh, radio, can I interview you? He said, yeah. And I went back to his manager and said, he, uh, he said, yes, he, he'll do an injury. No, he, he said he wouldn't have said that. He, he did say that. And uh, so I just stood there and the manager stood there and the manager eventually decided I wasn't going to move. So uh, he moved out the way and I took over and I started to do the, the interview with him. And uh, they, there'd been a kerfuffle somewhere in England before the boys had left, the left, and, and uh, I said to Mick, what what happened with this problem you, you guys were having? And he said, Jim, we weren't even there uh, when he, when we talked about what the problem was. He said, we weren't even there. He said, if they, the media, do that to an insignificant thing like pop music, what must they do to politics? And I've never forgotten that. It's a little wise comment from, uh, from Mick Jagger. Radio 5K Okay, Jim, time now for our dozen or so questions we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I think he was on, I was on Perry Street. It was about eight o'clock in the morning. And I, I don't know what, whether that's significant, but early in the morning seemed to, because there were people everywhere. And they weren't all talking about John Lennon, but as I sort of listened and listened, oh, there's a problem. And suddenly the problem was that John Lennon had died. Uh, how old that news was, I don't know. The last concert ticket you paid for, Jim? Johnny Ray, The Big Beat, uh, near the, uh, the, the complex near the Torrent. Um, and that, that was the last one I paid for. 
Is there a concert act you regret never seeing? Tina Turner. I've interviewed her, but I, I've never seen a show, and she's the sexiest lady, and she's just a great person, and um, I, I miss seeing her concert. Hey, good choice. Jim, the word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. Important. You hear people say important. I said it once or twice, heard it back. No, important. Now, Jim, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Never. Hey, well done. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Daryl Braithwaite would have to have the nose in the front. I wasn't doing a lot of work uh, in that era, in that time, but uh, Daryl, good performer. Uh, but And I wasn't that wrapped in skyhooks, but I certainly did like, did like Daryl. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? That's a hard one, because as I mentioned, with talking to Mick Jagger, you'd be lying ball. We'll sneak in an extra one here, Jim. Crows or the power? Crows. The most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? Yes, on my mobile phone now, it's a photograph of me. That's when I um, was twice awarded the top disc jockey for South Australia. Everybody's magazine ran a competition in 1965 and 1967. And I won both of them, um, being voted by, by the listeners. And uh, I was very, very proud of that. Uh, and I also, I've still got that photo on my phone now. Jim, what was the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? I, I didn't have a lot of news that broke on air. I was more into rock and roll. And I know what you're saying, uh, and things probably happened. It was around about the Vietnam um, time of Vietnam, and probably that would have been the the area that was being discussed by news. That that's all I can think of there. Jim, for all those people you interviewed over the years, was there a moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? <laughs> Not quite starstruck, but close to it. John Moore's. Ah, <laughs> oh, look. I, I'll never forget the first time I, I was on, on air with him and just the, the way he, he his voice resonated. Hello, world, I'm John Dawes. Ah, <laughs> oh, love it. And I actually, I interviewed him once too because he was part of the recording network. And that was an absolute pleasure. Finally, Jim, are there two albums that were special to you in your younger years that still might even get a run today? Elvis is back and there's no business like show business. Two totally different albums, but two that I like, like very much. Well, Jim, we've made it to the end. It's been both a pleasure and an honour to chat with you today. A true legend of Adelaide Radio, who also holds a special place in the history of Australian radio. Thanks for being part of Pilots today. Thank you, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Jim Slade on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.